So, Father, we thank you for Crispin, for all that he is, for all that he, for, I thank you for his friendship to me and to us, and the way that he's been prepared just to come and share his knowledge and the gifts that you've given him uh, with us. And we pray for him this morning as he speaks, and we ask that as he shares with us from your word, that we might really meet with you, be challenged, uh, meet with you in deep ways, that you might come speak to us. Uh, we pray you bless him and anoint him as he shares with us today. Amen. Thank you, Nigel. Um, um, it's always fun being with you, Nigel, and being with uh, Winchester Vineyard. Uh, you, we, had a, we had a great time yesterday, um, and uh, I always look forward to coming back. This is not an uplifting message. <laughs> uh, though I think it's true. And if you take it seriously... It, it will lead to your uplifting. I'd rather not be giving you this message because on several fronts it's, it's a hard message. I'd rather be giving you a, a message where it's easy to tell jokes and, and, and have a laugh and, and tell amazing stories about what God, God is doing. Um, but this is a message where it, it might feel a little painful at times. And... Uh, it's also hard for me because it's a message where I can't really tag it to what you already know. Pro- probably for many of you, this is going to feel like it's not what you've heard before. Uh, that it doesn't fit in an existing box. Let me work out how to uh, organize this presentation from my iPhone. Uh, Control slideshow, yes, as I want to be in control, please. No connection available, not a good start. Um, please, somebody help me. Can somebody help me? It's connecting, control slideshow. A remote control, how to remain remote and in control. Um, it's not working for me. It was working a moment ago. Um, let me talk about the slides on the screen um, while somebody's getting that to work. And okay, yeah. Uh, so um, I was here 18 months ago, and um, does anyone remember me being here? Yes. Do you remember what I said? Yes. Wow, that's good. Let me test you on that. <laughs> Do you have a pen and paper? Uh, I talked about contagious holiness. Next slide, please. Uh, and uh, I looked at some passages in, Mark, in Mark's gospel where Jesus touches people who are unclean. People who have a condition which, according to the laws of Moses, uh, is unclean in a way which is contagiously unclean. Uh, conditions which, according to Numbers 5, require those people to be placed outside of the community, outside of the city, outside of the camp. Because to come into contact with those people, you would become unclean yourself. So he touches, for example, uh, somebody who has leprosy. He touches uh, somebody, next slide, next point, who, um, has be, who is dead. Uh, in fact, he comes into the house of the girl in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 5. And as soon as he comes into the house of the girl, he, according to the laws of Moses, comes under the sphere of death. In, in Numbers 19, uh, we're told that to be under the same roof of a body, a dead body, uh, means that you would contract this contagious impurity. It's like miasmic rays 
emanate from the body, hit the roof, bounce back and get us. And, and we're contaminated with that, with that force, with that power. And he also touches a woman who is suffering a condition of a permanent menstrual flow. And in each case, he heals the person. He raises the girl from the dead. How does he do that? Does he become impure himself? I try to show you that what, what's happening here is that he has a contagious purity, a contagious life, a contagious creative life force, which is more powerful than the impurity. That the flow goes in the other direction. It was an uplifting message. It was the message I'd rather do now, but I can't do it twice. That's a waste of time. Um, and in fact, I, I think we even had a story, before I got up to speak last time, we had a story of somebody who'd been healed of a skin condition, um, which, according to the laws of Moses, would probably be counted as leprosy in, in the ancient world. Today's message is a natural follow-on from this message. Um, it's, it's the other side of the coin. What I hope you appreciated from the last message was that there, there is more to our human identity than definitely the world says, and more perhaps than a, what, a lot of what the church says. That we are more powerful, we have a greater potential to impact the world around us than we realize. And that when we have the power of God in us, that, that power, the power that Jesus had, can flow through us to heal, to bring back from the dead, to bring life where there is hopelessness. But you see, the same goes for the negative potential we have. Could you click the next slide? Um, skip that one. Uh, let's just cover off that one. How are we doing? Not going to work? Oh. Just going to keep saying. Um, I think I might move myself a little bit this way then so I can see what's going up there. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so Jesus was aware that the power went out from him. And um, uh, this sums up what happens with the contagious holiness. Next bullet point. Uh, the Torah, the laws of Moses, expelled the impure in order to witness to God as the God of life, wholeness and purity. Jesus witnessed to the same God by healing people thus fulfilling the ultimate purpose of the law. Jesus did not come along and say, oh, all that impurity stuff, we don't believe in that anymore. That's all very primitive religion nonsense. We, we, we've grown up. He does recognize the power of impurity. It's just that he is more powerful because he has contagious life, contagious holiness. Next slide, please. Next slide. And again. Just watch this, could you, for a moment? Oh, no. Um, it's really annoying because I can't see what's coming next. Um, so I'd like to talk about this passage. Let, let a person examine himself, says Paul, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Next bullet point. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Have you ever wondered what that verse means? Um, I've been a Christian for uh, 30-odd years. And um, over, over that time, I, I've seen remarkable things happen. And uh, 
I've seen disappointment. There have been situations where God has slowly built up in a community a sense of trust and faith, and then there's been an outpouring of the Spirit. Equally, I've seen situations where a church has experienced growth and life and power in in the realm of healing, people becoming Christians, and then in a relatively short space of time, that community has lost members, leached members, rapidly. And I, I have been puzzled by that phenomenon. Why does that happen? And why does Paul say that? Now, I, I haven't sat down with Nigel and, and Joe and asked them what's going on in Winchester Vineyard, and um, I've no idea if that's a reality um, here. I, I, I would be surprised, though, if there aren't people here today who you would say that, uh, oh, great, thanks, that you would say that, you know, th- th- there have been situations where you, you, some, somebody, somebody is ill or somebody died before their time and, and you, you cried out, well, you know, why, why did that happen? Does anyone have an answer? Does anyone have a good explanation for that? Would you like one? How badly would you like one, though? (laughs) Why badly? What would you do to get an answer to the question, why is that true? What's discerning the body? Anybody got any suggestions on what discerning the body is all about? Is there something to do with where your heart's at? Which body is this we're talking about? Paul is talking, by the way, in the context, this comment comes in the context of um, the Lord's Supper and uh, the fact that there were some people who are being left out of the Lord's Supper. The rich people are eating first and then the, the poor people are getting the leftovers. Um, and uh, it doesn't feel like a proper community in Corinth because there's like division between different people. So the body is probably the church. But what does discerning the body of Christ mean? And why would you need to discern the body of Christ to ensure that people don't die unnecessarily and people don't fall sick unnecessarily? Well, here's here's my explanation, and then I'm going to try and show you why this is true. You can break it down into these points. After Adam, the power of death afflicts all humanity. Nothing shocking or surprising in that. I hope we all know that. We're all under the curse of Adam, which means we die, our bodies decay, and uh, we experience illness. Jesus and his spirits bring power to heal and push back the power of death. He is the source of life. He's creating a new creation amongst us. He releases us through the cross from the power of death. But Jesus and his spirit are offended and dishonored, grieved when we mistreat each other, when we do not discern the body of Christ. Where is the spirit of God right now in this room? He's in you and me, isn't he? Sometimes he manifests himself outside of you and me, but if he's anywhere, he's in you and me. 
If I visited your house and gave you my coat, and when I left it was in shreds, how would I feel? If, if I visited your house and took off my shoes, and when I left they were all scuffed and marked, how would you feel? How would I feel? So if it's, if it's the case that we feel dishonored by the things that are ours when they're mistreated, how much more is it the case that God feels dishonored and grieved when the things that are his, you and I, are mistreated? And, and if you regularly visited a neighbor who, who mistreated your possessions, you would stop visiting them, I think. Now, God being God is bigger than you and I, and he keeps coming. But the way we treat each other affects him. And it affects his ability to act. So, um, I think I can show this is the case from the story of Jesus. And I'd like now to do a little Bible study on a passage in Mark chapter 8, which goes like this. They get into a boat, but they forgot to take loaves of bread with them in the boat, except for one loaf. And he instructed them, saying, Beware, look out for the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. And they were arguing with one another because they had no bread. And knowing, Jesus said to them, Why are you arguing about the fact that you have no bread? Do you not see and understand? Have your hearts become hardened? Though you have eyes, you do not see. Though you have ears, you do not hear. And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of crumbs did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. Then, and when there were seven for four thousand, how many baskets full of crumbs did you take up? They said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you still not understand? <laughs> well, do you understand? Um, one of the reasons why I thought I should do this talk was that apparently, although I t- did teach this session uh, to Nigel when he was at WTC, he, he didn't. Uh, he didn't get it, so. Uh. No, sorry, not fully. Not fully. Well, what is it about? I mean, anyone, anyone any ideas? Let's just go through it, and um, I would love to know what you think. Uh, why is he talking about yeast? Is it something to do with bread? It spreads. Okay, yeah, good. That's, that's absolutely key. So, what, you know, are the, are the Herodians spreading? Are the Pharisees spreading? What, what, what's, why, why is he using the language of something spreading for these guys? Uh, sorry? Is it something to do with the law? What's the problem with the law? Why, why does he want... Is he saying beware, beware of the law? He doesn't say beware of Moses, who wrote the law. He's saying beware of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Jesus is pretty respectful of the law, actually. So, so what's, the, what's the deal with the law? Okay, one at a time. Is it something to do with using the law to further your own ends? Um, could be. Um, somebody else? Is it adding to the law? Um, definitely that is an issue earlier on in chapter 7. Um, uh, the Herodians aren't interested in the law. They're pretty lax and liberal on the law. Um, Hello? Hypocrisy. Um, In Matthew, Jesus does talk about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. 
Um, we're going to focus entirely on Mark's gospel. Uh, I don't think... Uh, oh, it does come up, doesn't it? I think there is hypocrisy somewhere in there. Um, but not... Whoops. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure that it's hypocrisy. Um, any other suggestions? Yeah. Um, could be. Uh, let's just have them all out. That influence. What is it about their influence? Okay, why is it a bad influence? Yeah. It binds and does not liberate. I think that we're all coming out with good things which are ultimately true. Um, but I'm not sure they're really key to the passage yet. The law contaminates everything. Well, again, it's unlikely that Jesus would have a problem with the law. Because the law has been given by Moses. Jesus doesn't diss the laws of Moses anywhere. Impurity, it's an issue. It's just that I have more life, more contagious holiness than impurity. So I don't think it's going to be a problem with the law per se. What about all these numbers, these facts and figures? Do you not remember verse 18, 19, when I broke the five loaves? He wants them to go through all these figures and... Go back to what happened earlier when he multiplied food for the 5,000 and 4,000. What's the point of all of that? What has that got to do with the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of the Herodians? Yeah? Um, do they have a lack of focus on God's creative power? Well, you know, is it, so is it a case of... Um, if you have, if they have one loaf, don't worry, about the, don't worry about the bread, we'll be okay. I can multiply the bread. We've got one loaf, that's fine. Um, could be, but then why go into all the facts and figures? And what's that got to do with the yeast of Pharisees and yeast of Herodians? Okay, it's, it's coming back to Nigel. It's coming back to Nigel. <laughs> do, do you want to take over? No. <laughs> Hello? What does? Okay. But then, so then why, why, how do you connect up the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of the Herodians as a contagion, as a falsehood in relation to verses 18, 19? And why does he say to the disciples, do not understand? Well, it can. Well, I'm sure the word got out, but I think the miracle will just happen then and there. Um, okay, let, let me unpack what I think is going on for you in this passage. Um, and, and, and probably what I'm about to say will tie up some things that you guys have said, but um, I'm hoping that it'll open your eyes and you'll understand. Uh, you need to know up front a little bit about the Pharisees and the Herodians. Um, the Pharisees are kind of like, well, at least some of them you probably want to compare with the Taliban. You know, that they're, they're hardcore Jews. So some of them were leaders of the revolutionary movement that went to war against Rome. And they're really big on being strict about keeping the law and adding laws to the laws of Moses. So they're party poopers. The Herodians, they're the party people. 
They want to live it up. They want to enjoy all the benefits of Rome and Greek culture. Uh, they like parties. They like the wine flowing. They're probably, probably pretty liberal with laws when it comes to sexuality and marital relationships. So that these guys are at the opposite end of the spectrum from each other. But Jesus says both of them are a problem. Watch out, guys. You could easily get contaminated by hardcore legalistic teaching, but you could equally get contaminated by lax liberal teaching. In verse 18, he says, do you not remember? He wants them to pay attention. He wants them to think about what has happened, to look back over what's been going on in the ministry until this point. And when he says, do you not see and understand, do you still not understand? If you're looking at Mark carefully, as you're you're reading Mark, you'll notice that there are other times when the issue of the disciples not understanding has already come up. When he's walked across the water and they think he's a ghost, he says, or, or Mark says, they did not understand about the loaves that he had multiplied. And Jesus says in chapter 7, do you fail to understand what I'm teaching you about impurity and about it not being a problem that you don't wash your hands before you eat? And when he says, have your hearts become hardened, that also should remind them that he's already told them that their hearts are becoming hardened. So how are their hearts becoming hardened? What, what is happening there? And uh, in the immediately preceding passage, if you have a Bible, you might want to look at it at this point in time. In the immediately preceding passage, Jesus has been confronted by Pharisees who come and test him to see if he can produce a miraculous sign from heaven. And he sighs deeply. He groans deeply. Why does he groan deeply? Well, he's just fed 4,000 people. He's just produced the miracle of all miracles. The Pharisees have eyes but do not see. Maybe they have eyes but do see, but they have hearts that do not want to see. So when Jesus says in the next passage that maybe they have hearts that have become hardened, maybe their eyes do not see, he's surely saying that they have become like the Pharisees. Maybe they've been influenced by the Pharisees. We still don't know what it is that they don't see. It's obvious what the Pharisees don't see. We're still struggling struggling ourselves to see what it is that the disciples don't see. But you can hopefully see at least that Jesus is putting them in the same category as the Pharisees. When you remember, when you remember, when you look at the story that's unfolding and ponder what is happening, 
Do you do that? Do you, do you look at the story of Winchester Vineyard and ponder what is happening? Do you look at the story of your life and ponder what is happening? And remember the good things and then ponder the bad things. I don't mean stew over. I mean ponder prayerfully. Now, yeast is influence. As some of you have said, yeast is fundamentally an image of influence and contagion. Sometimes it's a positively used image. For example, Jesus tells the parable of the, of the kingdom as a yeast that a woman took and mixed with measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Sometimes, though, New Testament texts use the image of yeast with a negative sense. Paul says to the Corinthians, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's describing a situation where somebody in the congregation is sleeping with their mother-in-law or something weird like that. And, and he says, you know, this is just horrendous. You, you need to remove these people who, are, who, who threaten the, the holiness of the community. Sexual immorality in the community can, can destroy the life of God in the community. So yeast itself is a neutral image. It can be either used positively or negatively. Got it? Jesus, of course, has a particular kind of influence. It's the influence of contagious holiness. It's the influence of kingdom life and new creativity. It's the kind of influence that will heal people and feed 5,000 from just a small amount of resource and that will heal 4,000. But there is another kind of yeast at play, the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of the Herodians. What is that? How does that work? If you've ever read Mark as a whole, from beginning to end, you'll, you'll notice that it's a game of two halves. In the first half, Jesus does many powerful things. Wham, bam. Divine shock and awe. It's breaking out everywhere. In the second half, there's only two healing miracles. There is, there is a, a, the most outstanding miracle, the resurrection. But apart from that, the shadow of the cross falls long all the way down from chapter 15 to chapter 9 and 8. The power's gone, it seems. And it doesn't get, just get switched off. It begins to wane already in the first eight chapters. If you read carefully, you'll notice, for example, that in Mark 1 to 6, uh, everything that Jesus ever does is effortless, instantaneous. He doesn't turn anyone away. You come, you get healed. Whereas, as we move towards the cross, towards the end of chapters 1 to 8, it begins to become more difficult for Jesus. In one passage that Mark gives, Jesus has to withdraw from the crowd to heal the man, and he groans. He, he can't do this healing instantly, and he has to withdraw from people to be able to achieve what in the past he did when he was surrounded by people. And then we have that fascinating story in Mark chapter 8 of the healing of the blind man in two stages. First of all, he, he kind of half sees, and people are walking around like trees, but he can't really make it out properly. And then, he, then Jesus has to have another go. Losing the knack, Jesus. 
What's happening to you? Let's go back and look at the feeding stats in the passage where the disciples are in the boat. In the first feeding story, there were five loaves and 12 baskets of leftover crumbs. In the second, there were 4,000 fed from seven and seven left over. What's happened there? The accountants amongst you should be (laughs) totting up the figures before I get there. And you'll have noticed that there is a 20% loss of church membership. (laughs) Weekly giving has gone down, plummeted. Got a serious problem. Whoops. And uh, we've managed to create all this extra bread from more resources. But for fewer people. And there's less leftovers. The power of the kingdom is waning, is it not? People are, are dropping off. People are disappearing. Do you not remember? When you, when you look at the story of where we've come from, do you not see something's going on, guys? You, you, should, you should be paying attention. You know, John Wimber taught us, bless what God is doing. Focus on what God is doing. Align yourself with what God is doing. Go with that. It's absolutely key, isn't it, to everything. But here Jesus does something else. Here Jesus says, just open your eyes. Look at, look at what is not happening. Discern the problem. Don't stew over it. Don't get bogged down in it because I'm still a big God. But discern. And actually, it's, there's more to it than this. You read Mark's gospel as a whole and you notice that it, the way Mark tells a story, there's lots of time and attention given to all the, par- par- all the stories of miracles early on. Um, but slowly, the amount of attention and, and the number of cases of miracles begins to drop off. At the same time, there's a parallel increase in opposition, increase in uncleanness. Early on in Jesus' ministry, there were a couple of occasions where he has to deal with opposition from the Pharisees, from the Herodians. One verse here and there describes opposition, verbal opposition, the intention to bring Jesus down. But as the story progresses, we have more and more time given in the script of the play to that opposition mounting against Jesus. Until we come climactically to the story of the Pharisees testing Jesus. It's only three verses, but in some ways it's a, it only needs to be three verses. What does it mean to test Jesus? Why, what's happening there? Well, who was the last person to test Jesus in Mark's gospel? Satan in the wilderness. It's the same verb in the Greek. Jesus ministering amongst his people, Israel, are his people, the nation. And amongst these people, there is a steadily increasing opposition. And Jesus wants his disciples also to see that this this opposition is really 
all about a defilement. So he says this in this passage. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And he said what comes out of a person that makes them defiled or common are the bad thoughts that come from inside, from people's hearts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, evils, deceit, debauchery, the evil eye, blasphemies, arrogance, foolishness. All these evil things come from inside and defile a person. Jesus still believes the laws of Moses when it comes to impurity. It's an issue. It's not enough to be a member of God's people, to be an Israelite, to be a son and daughter of Abraham. You can still be impure. Wimber was once asked, can a Christian be demonized? Can a Christian have a demon? And he said, a Christian can have whatever they want. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean to say you can't, you're not going to be afflicted by these things. But my point today is that when, when we are defiled, we affect the world around us. When, when we attack others, it affects the spiritual atmosphere. And God is grieved, the spirit is grieved. What's my next slide? And so Jesus really does feel it. He's a man, not just God. And he groans in his spirit. If Jesus being the son of God is affected... We should not be surprised that the spirit is affected now. Now, I, 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 th- I think there's a remarkable thing going on with Winchester Vineyard. I, I think you have understood something about grace, and, and you have a leader, you have leaders that understand how important it is to be, to be open-hearted and to be gracious. And there is a culture of love and grace and acceptance in this place. It's very palpable. You know, there needs to be that trust to to be able to be confident and pray in tongues in a worship service, doesn't there? So I'm not, in bringing this message, I'm not, I'm not discerning a huge problem. Please don't misunderstand me. But, but what I, what I think is for you today is, is the message that there is a greater level of power available when you step into a culture of honor and when you become intentional about removing unkind talk the word on the previous slide um, there's a word on the previous slide blasphemies and um, it's one of the things that Jesus lists as a cause of impurity blasphemies Now, I'm not sure that's the best translation. I think a better translation might just be slander. That when you attack another person to their face, from behind, however it may be, that is kind of blasphemy because we're made in God's image. And so you attack another human being, especially one that's a son and daughter of God. You kind of attack God. What have I got next? I've got no way of knowing what's coming up next. 
All these things affect the presence of God in, in Jesus' ministry. I think the Pharisees want control. Why are they picking on the issue of Jesus' disciples not washing their hands before din-dins? Well, you know, it's, it's a pretext. Why are they coming to test him for a sign? It's a pretext. All they really want to do is bring him down because he's a competitor. And they want to be in control. They feel threatened. There are all sorts of reasons, motivations behind uh, these causes of impurity. But Jesus, you see, in this discussion with the disciples alone in the boat, he gives them a riddle. He, he often speaks that way, doesn't he? Because he wants them to think about it. He wants them to invest some hard work in trying to figure out what's going on. But most of all, he wants them to learn, to open their eyes, to discern the contagious impurity that sometimes brings it all down. And that, that in, in his case, is actually going to put him on the cross eight chapters later. He's, he's troubled. The, 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 the disciples are so influenced by the Pharisees and the Herodians that they're going to become entangled in the culture of dishonor. And that they are becoming blind and hard-hearted. What he, what he wants them to understand is not the understanding that comes through academic study. It's not an intellectual understanding, it's the understanding of the heart. The understanding that is willing to, to, to be honest about the effect you can have as a person on other people. So back to that passage. I think that's why Paul says what he says. So let's be clear, I'm not saying that Paul believes people that have died or that are now sick have lost their salvation. Whether that's the case for individuals or whatever, I don't know. He's making, the, he's making the, just this point that because there is behavior in the community that does not discern honor, love, respect every member of the community as a part of the body of Christ. That has frustrated the presence and power of God. And things are happening which should not happen. The, 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 kingdom, the old kingdom, the kingdom of Adam, the kingdom of Satan, has begun to encroach again. It's not a question of eternal salvation being lost for anybody, anybody in particular. Um, in saying everything I've said, I've been hugely influenced by that book. I recommend you read it. I think Bethel have understood a lot of what I'm saying. It takes honor to create a culture of safety and trust for God to move. And I think you've got it here. I think there's another level that you can go to. Guys, let's just wait on the Lord for a minute. Let's just be quiet. Thank you, Crispin, for sharing with us. I think you've taken us really deep. I'd like to say that I'm really glad. I think I do understand it this time around. <laughs> I got some of it last time. <laughs> Why don't we just wait on the Lord?
as Crispin said, it's not an easy message. In many ways, it's a heavy message. But if there's any heaviness here, we want that to be because the Spirit of God and not because of anything human. So let's just wait. And Holy Spirit, we invite you once again with your wonderful presence just to come and sit with us. And Lord, where there's something that you want to say, if there's an attitude that you want to challenge, if there's a word of encouragement or a word of grace that you need to, then we, we just give you permission to do that. And we just wait on you for a minute. We'll just wait. We'll just wait. Just want to um, I want to say a couple of things in response. I think that... Um, one of the challenges for us as a leadership team is to go away and reflect on this in terms of our leadership and uh, see if there's anything sort of collective or corporate that God wants to speak to us about. And we will do that. Um, but I think that there's also an opportunity this morning for us as individuals. And we may want to respond to anything that God's doing just as we were in that quietness. The song that we could just about hear through the wall from the kids upstairs. The words are shine from the inside out so the world will see you live in me. That's what they're singing. And I just felt like that was a prompting from the Lord that actually what he wants to do is literally shine right through. And so if there are things um, that as we've prayed and we've just sat before the, the Holy Spirit today that you feel that you want to sort out, then this is an opportunity to do business with God. And I would. we've still got two or three minutes before we have to go and get the kids. So... Um, and if you don't have kids or whatever, there's plenty of time is what I'm saying. And so what I'd love to encourage you to do, um, as Mike just starts to play um, some worship uh, music, is just to, um, just to do your business with God. Now that might mean that you need to come and you just want to come and sit in this space at the front and kneel or stand or sit before the cross. Um, you know, you may not need anyone to pray with or anyone to pray with you. You may be able to do that in your seat and you know that God's speaking to you about that and you know how you should respond. But if you want to make a physical response by way of saying to God, yeah, I'm coming to do business, then that could be what you do. And the other encouragement to us is that it could be that actually, as a result of what the Lord's saying, you, we, we need to go and speak to somebody else who may or may not be here. You know, there's a whole thing that Paul talks about about leaving your, if you're if you're in dispute with somebody, or if something's if you've not got if you're not in right relationship with somebody, and before you come to the altar and before you come to worship, you need to sort that out. So if 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 the Lord is prompting you about that, then maybe this is a good time to do that. And maybe that person isn't here, and you may need to text them or phone them or or do something when you get home. But these are all different ways in which we can respond to what God's doing. So why don't we just stand together and um, I would just love to encourage you if you sense that what you want to do is just come be before the Lord it may be that you actually want to you actually want to find somebody you trust and just confess something to them. There's no pressure to do that but if you want to do that there is an opportunity but why don't you come and uh, if you want to respond in that way just come kneel or stand before the Lord. There's no, nobody's going to be judging you, nobody's going to be hassling you particularly just uh, very briefly there's a little verse in 2 Timothy 4 
which tells us that the word is there to correct, rebuke, and encourage. <clears throat> so it's not a, not a tough thing. The Lord is always going to encourage. And in my experience, too, the wonderful thing about the Holy Spirit is that he's very <clears throat> um, direct, so that he, he's never vague, uh, but he speaks specifically. Um, so I feel the Lord is uh, wanting to uh, help us to receive correction, rebuke when necessary, and also encouragement. Thank you, Brian. So if you want to take this opportunity to just respond physically by coming into a space, kneeling before or standing before the Lord, by way of just starting to do business with him and being encouraged and having him meet you here. As I say, you know, there's no guilt here. If it's condemnation, that's not of God. If it's the spirit, it's encouraging and it's healing and it's freeing. So if you want to respond to that, please come do that. Guys, why don't you just lead us as we... Yeah. 